This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I just looked at the numbers today. Worldwide, COVID has affected 5.01 million people, and the number of deaths is over 32, over 328,000 cases. In US alone, we have 1.6 million cases of COVID and there's been over 94,000 deaths. We've all been struggling to find out how to treat, how to manage COVID. And helping us in this effort, we're gonna be joined today by Dr. Michael Joyner, who is the professor of anesthesia and principal investigator of the expanded access program of using convalescent plasma. This has been approved by FDA. Dr. Joyner is a world-class, world expert in human physiology, is professor of anesthesia, and is also a distinguished Mayo educator. Welcome, Dr. Joyner. Good to be with you. Dr. Joyner, before we get into how to use convalescent plasma, could you just let us know the principle behind using convalescent plasma in treating COVID-19 illnesses? Convalescent plasma is a classic passive immunity strategy. Antibodies that fight disease are harvested from recovered patients and given to patients with active disease. This is an old strategy. It's been used uh, since 1900 or before, and uh, it had a rich history prior to World War II in the event, uh, the advent of more modern uh, technology, including antibiotics. The convalescent plasma has been used in the past historically for treatment of various epidemics like uh, the flu and the Ebola virus? Correct. It, it was used extensively in 1918 with the Spanish flu. There was convalescent sera and certainly passive immunity to treat pneumococcal pneumonia prior to antibiotics. Uh, it was used most recently in SARS. It's been very effectively used against Argentine hemorrhagic fever, and uh, it was tried against Ebola as well. There are some nuances here, but in generally, it's got a pretty good uh, track record, usually some efficacy, and uh, always better to treat disease earlier rather than later. I'll come more on the how you came around bringing up this program, but can you let us know about this Convalescent Plasma Expanded Access Program? The Expanded Access Program is a program that Mayo Clinic runs in collaboration with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And it's designed to allow people to be treated with convalescent plasma. As of this morning, which is uh, May uh, 21st, we had treated about uh, 14,000 people in the United States. We have sites in all 50 states, Puerto Rico and the far Pacific Islands. Uh, we give one or two units of convalescent plasma to people with active COVID-19 disease who are hospitalized. These individuals could just be in the hospital, could be severely ill in the hospital, or could also be in the intensive care unit. We've uh, analyzed uh, the first 5,000 patients for safety in terms of things like transfusion-related lung injury or transfusion-associated cardiac overload. And so far, uh, the results from a safety perspective look good. We have anecdotal evidence of some remarkable responses. We're waiting for um, an exposure control or a matched control analysis to be done. That's very challenging, but we're working on that now. And there's data filtering in from small trials and small uh, 
matched control studies suggesting that efficacy might be good. So uh, we're cautiously optimistic. It is amazing that uh, over such a short period, you've been able to get this pro program running and have enrolled over 14,000 patients. I was just looking at some of the, the literature and there are small cases of five patients uh, or odds that have been reported from China and other places. So this is an, the largest study in the world, largest collection and it's still ongoing. You also have a great website www.uscovidplasma.org. So if I as a provider or as a hospital want to enroll in this website, what do I need to do? Go to the website, follow the instructions. We have a number of drop-down menus that allow hospital sites, physicians and patients to be enrolled. We've got uh, all of the um, IRB and other compliance materials you need right there, step-by-step -step instructions and a number of drop-down menus to enroll patients, perform uh, simple case reporting, and so forth. How many hospitals have signed up? Oh, uh, all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Pacific Islands, and as of this morning, I believe over 2,200 hospitals have signed up. 2,200 hospitals, that's, that's amazing. Yep. It's increasing every day. I've seen, I've seen your uh, uh, slide, which is looking at the different dates, and it's amazing. And I understand it's quite hard, some of the complications of plasma infusion, like fluid overload or allergic reaction or trolley, uh, it's kind of hard because these patients are already quite sick. Correct. And we do not see any major signals uh, in these people suggesting that they're having excess numbers of trolley, taco, and, and other complications associated with plasma generation. Of the first 5,000 we've uh, analyzed, about one-third were in the hospital uh, on the floor, two-thirds were in the ICU, and of the people in the ICU, about 18% had multi-organ failure or were septic. So it's a, it's a tough group of patients who have a very devastating disease. So I clearly understand the kind of patients you are, uh, the protocol allows in, for, to infuse convalescent plasma. They are almost the sickest of the sick, but the ones in the floor, can you let us know what kind of patients they are? Uh, you know, on the average age is around 62 years, and like a lot of uh, hospitalized patients, many of these individuals have something else going on. They've got some sort of coexisting disease, they're obese, and, and so forth. So um, the things we're all reading about in the medical literature and actually seen in the, in the popular press about coexisting disease being a real confounder in COVID-19 certainly seems to be reflected in the, in the patients that are uh, getting convalescent plasma. How are these convalescent plasma, how are they, how are we getting them? There should be a shortage of it, or how are we getting these? Uh, uh, at first, there was a shortage of it, but national recruitment efforts have been good. The blood banking community has stepped up, and uh, we've had a number of people who've recovered donate. And so initially, we were having trouble to meet demand, but supply has also been strong. Fantastic. And, and we are getting two infusions of them right now. Is it one or two? People can get one or, one or two units. That's going to be changed here shortly, uh, uh, and people will be able to receive more units. That's terrific. So it is almost like uh, fresh frozen plasma, but this has the antibodies. Is that correct? Correct. It, it is fresh frozen plasma, except for the presence of CV19 antibodies. Some of the studies which I have, which I have seen, and, and I understand it's going to be a very tough process trying to find out if this plasma we are the convalescent plasma has neutralizing antibody. What is your thought about 
doing these studies on neutralizing antibodies before giving this infusion? Seems like a long and cumbersome process. It should actually be straightforward as those assays get better. And we would certainly support that. And uh, I think one of the things that's happened over the last month or, or six weeks as this process has been going on is people are paying more attention to the uh, quality of the plasma that's being infused and trying to work to make sure it has plenty of uh, antibodies. And I understand the donors, they couldn't be multi-parous women. Is there some problem with pregnancy, post-pregnancy? No, in, in, in general, women who've been pregnant do not donate plasma in the United States because they're an increased risk of, of uh, trolley if blood products from women who've had uh, children are used. So one of the reasons we think the trolley rate is so low is that, that we've uh, avoided transfusions of plasma for multiparous women. From what you're saying, most of the donors or almost all are men. Correct. Okay. So the other part of the, the conversation which is coming up is this, okay, the convalescent pro plasma program is awesome, but there could be a surge coming down, the second surge, which everybody's worried about. What are the other kinds of options we have? There's talk about this hyperimmunoglobulin therapy. Right. So what hyperimmunoglobulin is, is, is pooled plasma that's been processed and, and standardized. So uh, efforts are ongoing to create uh, such a product, and it's hoped that that product will be available in, in, in the summer, late summer. And we are already using this immunoglobulin in uh, prevention of... Uh, hepatitis A uh, kind of cases where if I have to travel right. someplace, I get this uh, immunoglobulin and that takes care of me. Right. And I think that's one of the things that people are looking forward to is, is uh, how to use passive immunity to, to in a prophylactic context against um, CV19 and how to generate potentially IM or sub-Q doses similar to the uh, hepatitis A prophylaxis you mentioned. So this could be of great significance in places like New York or uh, the East Coast and West Coast where the outbreak has been heavy. Uh, there's a chance that the disease can come back and um, hyperimmunoglobulin can be a way of getting them an immunity for like two or three months. We don't know at this present. Could that be an option? We, we think it could be an option and we look forward to people working on that uh, to make it a reality. Wow, so that, that would be something. So as we are struggling with finding how to treat this patient, there's so many complications, convalescent plasma. We've heard some great anecdotal stories from, at least from the China study, all the five patients recovered. I don't think everybody is going to have that positive a study. And some of the cases that you are, you are treating are, are so far out, so advanced that we don't know whether this treatment will help them, but we hope so. But can you share some of the positive messages you're getting from all over the country uh, with the use yeah, of this? We're, we're hearing many positive anecdotes. Centers that are big users of this remain big users. We look forward uh, to you know the randomized trials that are ongoing being reported. So, so I think that we're certainly optimistic as physicians and scientists, but we need to also remain very skeptical and results-oriented in, in terms of, of our science. So again, we, we hear a lot of positive things, but, but we're waiting to, to learn more. So I can't let you go without asking you this question. I was, I was intrigued by how a world-class researcher in, in physiology and anesthesia going away, doing their business on a, on a daily basis, you suddenly wake up to this crisis 
and you are one person who wake up and you make a connection with a whole bunch of people, you, get, you mobilize over 2,000 hospitals. How does this happen? How, how, how does a common citizen do it? Well, I was very lucky. Uh, on, on February 27th, my good friend Arturo Casavidal from Johns Hopkins, who's an infectious disease expert, published an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal about the use of convalescent uh, Sarah and, and passive immunity in the 1930s to stop a measles outbreak. I emailed Arturo on February 28th and said, gee, this is extremely interesting. And I also think it could be done at scale because I knew something about the blood banking infrastructure in the United States. And things really got rolling in, in March. Uh, the folks at Hopkins were working on prophylaxis. We at Mayo started working on a treatment trial. Uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration started working on an expanded access protocol. Uh, sent it to me on, on March 30th. I have no idea why they picked me. Dr. Scott Wright, the uh, head of the Mayo Clinic IRB, felt that the Mayo IRB could review it for the FDA and serve as a central IRB. And then we began to really mix and match and, and get all sorts of people volunteering all over Mayo to help us do this. And we had also collaborators from the outside world. So it's just one of those things that sort of came together. Basically, what I do is just try to orchestrate uh, these incredibly talented and bright people and help uh, establish goals, get more convalescent plasma to more patients, but also do it in a way that allows us to track what the patients got, track their outcomes, and eventually uh, develop a rigorous way to look at the data. That is truly amazing. We've heard about these large companies, car manufacturing companies, which are now making ventilators. I mean, they're, they're repurposing. Uh, as a researcher, right. you often mention that you completely repurposed your lab. Uh, what did you do? That well, uh, I talked with my, my postdoctoral fellows, the trainees, my nurses, so forth, and we visited, and people really all bought into this, and we're all working on this project now with, with hundreds of other people. This is amazing. A couple of other things about collection of the plasma. As I understand, the donors do have to go to the Red Cross. They have to go to a standard blood bank where blood can be collected. Some cities, that's the Red Cross. Some places are like Mayo and Rochester, where we have our own blood bank. Other people go to a, a community-based blood bank of, of uh, one sort or the other with a different sponsor or another. But the point is, is that everyone should be near a blood bank that can collect convalescent plasma. You can go to the aabb.org website, and there's a convalescent plasma finder. That's what I would encourage people to do. That's excellent. And because of the complexity of how the plasma is collected, this service cannot be done by a mobile unit. It just hangs around and goes around collecting. Yeah, correct. In general, people need to make a stop and make a visit at the blood bank. That is terrific. And again, I would refer to the website www.uscovidplasma.org for details of the convalescent plasma expanded access program and how to enroll. I can't thank Agreed. you enough, Dr. Joyner, with being so busy. I'm sure you're, you're being inundated with all the data coming from all over uh, the country. Can't thank you enough. What other parting things would you have to say? We hope to learn something about efficacy in the next month or two. And if you are a potential donor who's recovered from CV-19, please consider donating. And more importantly, if you're an average citizen, uh, please consider donating blood and other blood products. So other than uh, the, uh, the multi-parous woman 
if I'm a male and I've had the infection, is there any real contraindication for me to donate? Uh, you just need to meet all of the qualifications uh, for standard blood donation. Perfect, perfect. So thank you very much. We have been talking about the Convalescent uh, Plasma Expanded Access Program uh, by our principal investigator, uh, Professor Michael Joyner. Thank you, uh, Dr. Joyner. Uh, it has been an eye-opening experience. Hopefully, we'll get to learn very soon from your data. It's one of the largest data in the world. And thanks to your efforts of getting so many organizations together, it's not only amazing what you've done with uh, this program, you have also created uh, for future scientists and researchers a whole array of possibilities that if you were to encounter the situation again, a pandemic, a crisis, it may be an earthquake or whatever, how do human beings uh, who can do and who have people, who know people across the country can come across very rapidly and use um, their knowledge, their skill, their influence to deliver service. So thank you very much. You're very welcome and it's been a pleasure to visit. Thank you. So we'll continue to bring you updates on the situation as events unfolds. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.